Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? If you're visiting... Wonderful, brilliant. I love it. That would be the very British way of saying it. Don't you love having students in the church? (laughs) So good to have you guys here. Uh, If you are visiting, welcome. We are doing church a little differently these three weeks. Uh, So let me just say, just to to make sure you're you're in the picture, if you have kids in the room, I'm not talking about these well-behaved student-type kids over here, but I'm talking about maybe some of the younger kids and they start uh, making noise, it will not bother me at all. Um, so, so just, just be free to be free. One of my kids brought a yo-yo last week. They were just here to be here, and so we're all good. Um, just let's just uh, just flow. We're, we're in this series, but but first, I, j- I just have to mention the fact that it was my birthday this week. So, so, so that was last week. So, if you said happy birthday, thank you. If you forgot or didn't know, that's that's absolutely fine. But I, I share it to point out this: there is an age. Uh, that you get to, where you are made incredibly happy by a new plant and a straw hat. Whatever that age is, I am now at that age because these were my gifts. And that, that look on my face is just this genuine, just excitement. I don't know where the transition was from like video games and Nerf guns all the way through to straw hats and plants, but somewhere I have gracefully navigated that shift. Uh, and we are now fully there in the plants are great and straw hats are just as good phase. And so that was me in all of my birthday happiness. So uh, thank you for, yeah, just uh, for those of you that said happy birthday. It meant uh, a lot. We are in a series uh, that we uh, do every year. It's a vision series that this year we have called Yes If. Does the church matter? Well, yes, it does. If it really lives in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, something that we have said as a community is what we want to do. It seems like, and maybe you've caught a flavor of this, there are all sorts of bad ways to do church. There's ways to do church that might have Jesus on the branding, but actually can be really destructive in people's lives, can actually cause trauma. So there's ways it seems that you can do church and and say, no, no, that wasn't good. We are seeking to do that. I just realized I've just had that picture floating behind me uh, for the entire time, so I apologize. Uh, We are seeking to do something different to that. Uh, Andy Stanley says this, vision is about what could be and what should be. Think about when you've heard someone say something and said, oh, that makes me excited for what could be. Maybe a good example is back in the 60s. uh, John F. Kennedy said this, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. He also went to Germany and said, ich bin ein Berliner, which as a translation could read something like, I am a donut. Uh, it could simply mean that. Now, now this theory's maybe been debunked a little bit, but when I looked at, as to who debunked it, it was actually the Kennedy Museum that debunked it. And it seems like they have a vested interest in not making him look silly. There's these visionary statements that we might make. It's a longing for a different, a preferred future when we say, oh, I would love 
the church to look like that. I would love the world to look like that because of the church. If you've ever had those longings, then you're in the right place. Doesn't mean we see it right now. It doesn't mean that we know it's gonna happen. It, it just means that no, we're chasing after it. We're saying together as a group of people, this is worth chasing after. So what we've looked at the last couple of weeks uh, have, have been these couple of ideas. The earliest churches reflected Jesus' heart for hospitality. The church essentially has been a place that is supposed to welcome in those on the outside, those that are not like us. That in itself can be a challenging thing. The church also though coupled that with this belief that Jesus can transform anybody. If your life is a mess, if it feels like everything's been turned upside down, if it feels like you're kind of hanging on by a thread, when we look back across scripture, it means that you're in a good place to experience Jesus transforming power. That has been the history of the church, hospitality, transformation, and now we get to finish with this third piece of the triad, this third third principle. The earliest churches embraced Jesus' commitment to mission. Jesus' commitment to mission. We'll unpack that in just a moment, but first I wanna ask you a question. Uh, It may need you to think about it for just a second. Here it is. What is the most exclusive situation you found yourself in? Place where you maybe thought like, oh, I'm not sure I belong here. These people are uh, you know, maybe above my class. These people are, perhaps it's a wealth thing. Maybe you felt like, oh, these people are, are wealthier than me. Maybe you had a moment where you were in a, a place that, that access is limited to. Maybe it's just felt like a privilege to be there. Think about a moment where you experienced something like that for just a second. A friend of mine uh, got to go and play golf here at Augusta National Golf Course. This is the 12th, famous, famous 12th hole. And, and he said, I said to him, was it as good as you'd heard? He said, Alex, it was beyond anything you would ever believe. He said, I drove up and they asked me if I was supposed to be there. I showed them my license and they said to me, you are on the list. And so I drove up to the clubhouse and they welcomed me in. They did all the normal things. They took my golf clubs and then I walked in and, and a person walked up to me and said, what, sir, would you like for lunch? And he said, I haven't even seen the menu yet. And he said, no, no, sir. What would you like for lunch? And he said, that's the moment where he knew he was somewhere special. There's just a different type of feel to that place. Maybe for you, it's a person. When we lived in England, my wife got to meet this guy, the prime minister of England at the time, David Cameron. Now, now meeting a prime minister is a lot lower key, to be fair, than meeting a president. People don't seem to care much about his safety. He's just, you know, there's a couple of guys with him, and I think you made him a sandwich, right, or something like that. But it was, it was all very chilled out. But it certainly was meeting somebody. Or, or maybe you've got the privilege of flying first class in one of those places that try and make you feel... Try I make you forget like you're in an airplane. This is the first class suite on an Emirates A380 or something like that. I've never quite understood what the point is of flying first class and getting on the plane first because I always want to not be on a plane. I'm not really that interested. And then I realized one day, oh, it's so everybody else watches you get on the plane (laughs) and they know that you you are important, you are special. There's something about these situations that, 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 that kind of play with our minds. And you might say, it can't be exclusive if everybody is invited. If everybody's invited, it just looks like this. 
To be fair, I tried to get a picture of Sam's Club with everybody like crowding in at the doors, and there wasn't one. Nobody was there. Um, so, so if it's if if it's if, if anyone can come, like you get Costco, right? You just pay your little membership fee, and, and everything's there's something about the cost, the exclusivity that tells us that only a few people get to be there. This is Yellowstone Club, a a residential club for people that are very rich. It's a two hundred thousand dollar initiation fee, and then fifteen thousand dollars a year for the privilege of being a member. This is the Apollo Club in London. Only 500 people at any one time are allowed to be members of this club. So if you're on a waiting list, you're literally waiting for people to die so you (laughs) can join. It's kind of a sick mentality, really. From an early age, I would suggest, we are taught that exclusivity and desirability are tied to each other and that to lose the first is to lose the second. We must shut others out to keep what we value. When I worked in the golf industry in England, one of the the, the local courses wanted to build something new, and so they went to their members and said, we're going to bring in more members because we don't have the funds right now. And one particularly rich person came to the person organizing the funding and pulled out his checkbook and said, how much do you need? And the man told him a figure with six numbers in it, and he wrote a check and handed it over and simply said, I don't want any new people here. I don't want any new people here. It seems like it's possible to run any organization with that premise. Counterintuitively, the church, someone once said, is the only organization that exists for its non-members. It's the only organization in the world that it exists for its non-members. Now, an organization as a term might be maybe a struggle for us with church. Nikki Gumbel said this, the church is not an organization that you join. It's a family where you belong, a home where you are loved, and a hospital where you find healing. And I love that premise of church, but just speaking in terms of organizations, not as, as a style of grouping, but just as, as a group term. The church is the only one that exists for those that are not yet a part of it. Somewhere in our heritage is this idea that we are supposed to be there for the people that aren't sitting here. Which leads us to the third of the mission pathways that we unpacked last year. A church, our city and world would miss if we were gone. Hopefully if South wasn't here tomorrow, you and I would miss it. I went on vacation for three weeks and deeply missed South as a community. And hopefully you feel the same. That kind of excitement for the community you belong to is a good thing, a valuable thing. But still, there's this principle that Jesus has that, no, it's mission. It's for those that aren't here yet. That is a big part of why we exist. The church is the only organization that exists for its non members. The earliest churches embraced Jesus' commitment to mission. That's why they were there. So as we've prayed every week, as we wrestle with this concept, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me, a prayer from Francis Drake a good few hundred years ago. So as a community, we say, disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. When we pray that, we remind ourselves that that living into mission is not always easy. It's not always comfortable. 
but it is what God has called us to do. As usual, if you have any questions during any point during this sermon, maybe you've had questions already, uh, but hopefully some questions will come. You can drop them to our text line and Aaron and I will get back to them uh, in sometime this week on Thursday. The week after this, we are doing our podcast live, and so if you would like to come and join us on Monday night, the 11th of September, we'll be doing our podcast down at 6510. We would love to have a bunch of people heckling us just because it makes it more fun. And, and if no one turns up, we honestly feel our podcast is the kind of podcast that expected no one to turn up. So that's okay with us uh, as well. The church is the only organization that exists for its non-members. How do you feel about that statement? How many of you would say instantly, I believe that statement's true? Any hands? Anyone say, I think it's false? Anyone say, I'm not sure? Someone there, not sure? Maybe some of you want more than just true or false. Maybe you want some other options. Jesus definitely suggests that there is a way to live that is for those that are not part of your particular community. He pushes that with his disciples regularly. Uh, Let's drop in on this on Luke chapter 14. Then Jesus said to the man who had invited him to a banquet, when you host a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise they may invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you host a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. How many of you guys struggle with that idea? I'm I'm having a party. I'm celebrating something. The people I invite are the people that I don't have relationships with. Jesus asks some things like that, that that challenge us. In his last remarks to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, he says this, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is this firm go to that remark. Go out, don't stay here. He sends his disciples off all over the world and the 12 of them, the 12 apostles or 11 of them, at least after Judas has been Judas and been... Yeah, all that. They go off and they they reach all sorts of parts of the world. But this phrase in itself has a duality to it. Like, follow this with me. Therefore, go. There is a going aspect to it. But then what does he say afterwards? And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is a going, and then there's this firm discipleship element to it that happens, it seems, in community. You know, the interesting thing in in this verse was until about the 18th century, no one read this verse as any inherent verse that might say, you should go and reach the nations with this message of Jesus. People saw it as a discipleship verse. A guy wrote my thesis on William Carey was instrumental in turning this verse round into this evangelical imperative. But when he first brought it up to his Baptist Missionary Society, actually it wasn't called the Baptist Missionary Society originally, it was called the Propagation of the gospel to the heathen. So a particular Baptist society for the propagation of the gospel to the heathen. We just don't name things the way that we used to, do we? It's, we've lost some of the art of that. But when he raised this subject, he was specifically told by his fellow pastors, when, when God wants to save those outside the church, he'll do it when he's ready, without your help. 
This mindset was simply, no, the church exists for itself, for its own growth. It was only his remarks and other people that encouraged people to start to reach out to those outside the church. There has been, I would suggest, a tension between the church in the world crowd and the church for the world crowd. We've wrestled with that tension over the years. It's maybe you could phrase it like this. Are we here for community or for the world around us? Maybe speaks to some of the tension you felt where you said, I kind of want to say yes to the church exists for its non-members, but there's maybe a little hesitation and I'm kind of wrestling because I kind of want more. I kind of want both. And I would suggest Jesus says we have to have both. And to kind of wrestle that out, we're going to turn to one of his parables. Matthew 13 says this. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. This this parable is delivered in the midst of another bunch of parables that Jesus tells. And then what I love, and I had to share this with you, this is one of my favorite moments in scripture. Uh, It shows how childish I can be. He gets to the end of this long list of parables where he tells multiple stories to his disciples. Then he asks them a question. He says this, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they reply. No follow-up, no other comments. And, and I kind of feel like I've got to know these guys over years of reading the Gospels. And when they say yes, I'm like, Ooh, do you mean yes? Because <laughs> I think if I understand you, you might mean no. <laughs> they, they rarely seem to get Jesus' point. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds... Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus says, the kingdom I have come to initiate, the kingdom I have come to inaugurate, this new thing you are part of, it's like a mustard seed. This tiny little thing, this tiny grain that could get lost anywhere. And it grows and it grows and it grows. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed grows to become a tree, grows to be something more. I love that Jesus taps into this organic idea of trees. I wish he'd talked about this wonderful English oak, my favorite tree in the world, but it wouldn't be quite right to say, like the kingdom of heaven is like an oak tree. It grows from this fairly large seed. It doesn't work like that. He sticks with what he knows, with what people would see every day. This was the largest tree that grew up in that area that Jesus lived. And the mustard seed is the smallest seed that is planted. It taps into some of the idea that the church starts small and it grows and it grows and it grows. Do not despise the small beginnings. Little things begin little, but they can grow big. And Jesus says that's, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's what the church is like. It might start small, but it grows into something else. And he begins there with growth. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. According to Jesus, this idea of grow is essential to the kingdom of heaven. Essential, I would say, by extension to the life of the church. We're meant to grow together. And by grow, he's not necessarily just talking about size, but he's talking about all sorts of things. He's talking perhaps about health. I bought you a tree that hasn't grown. 
this is my lavender tree. And it started off oh so healthy, and then it looked unhealthy, so I started to cut at it, and it got worse, and it worse, and worse, and worse, and this is how it stands in proud glory today. The kingdom of heaven is not like this kind of tree. The kingdom of heaven starts small, but it grows, and health comes with it. But it also is for a larger purpose. Jesus doesn't lend his, land his parable with just the simple idea that small things become big. This grows big with a purpose. So that the birds come and they perch in its branches. The picture of the mustard tree that he gives us is that the people from all over the place, the, the birds of the earth will flock to it. They'll come to it for sustenance. They'll come to it because it is healthy, because it is grown, because it can sustain people. And, and so he paints this beautiful picture where in, in his image, this tree is both, it grows and it is by nature beautiful, but it invites in and it has space for others. It, it seems that in his parable, the call to go is also essential to kingdom life. And there's no place where those don't have to coexist. There's an interesting book that I've been reading recently. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees. It taps into just some of the uniqueness of trees and just some of the wonderful gift they are to humanity. Do you know if there weren't trees, it would never rain in Denver? Rain would never get more than 500 kilometers from the oceans. It just wouldn't spread, and trees make that possible. They have this life that they share with them. And so the writer talks about how he's been out in forests, and he's seen things that look like stones on the ground. And as he's scraped into the stone, he's found that it's actually green underneath. And what he's found isn't a stone at all. It's the remains of an old tree. He'll look and he'll see the five little points of a tree that has fallen or been chopped down years ago. And yet the trees around it still sustain it, still care for it. There's this organic life that happens all around us. And it, it kind of seems to point to this principle that I think is important for church and, and supports this idea that we exist, at least in part, for our non-members. Peter Woolburn says this, an organism that is too greedy and takes too much without giving anything in return destroys what it needs for life. Somewhere Jesus paints this beautiful picture of a kingdom that is a tree that is healthy, but it gives something to the world around it. He paints this picture for his disciples and says, no, you will go all over the place, but, but it will be this thing that brings life, that brings health. Tertullian said this years ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That term martyrs is simply the same as the word we would translate witness. The blood of the witnesses to who Jesus is. For years, Christians dying for their faith, he said this grew the church. This is the thing that established it when they went and were for the world around them. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter four, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. Seems like the early church was very clear on their purpose for the world around him. I love Paul's image of a, of a drink offering. It was a wasteful offering. They would take something that was valuable, whether it was water, whether it was wine, and literally pour it out on the ground. And he takes that image and says, that's, that's kind of what I feel like in my gift to the church and to the world around us. It reminds me somewhat humorously of this moment, this Boston Tea Party moment where the beautiful tea shipped across the world was destroyed by a bunch of people that we won't talk about. We won't go down that route, but there's this, this giving image there that we can land on. We, we are poured out 
for the world around us. There's this sacrifice to following Jesus that he seems to expect and demand. But the tree has to be healthy to do that. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree when it grows. When it grows. And if it doesn't, and if it isn't healthy, then it's not good. The call to grow and the call to go, I would suggest according to Jesus, in both his instructions to his disciples and in his parables, they can't be separated. The church has to be this healthy body that cares about its growth, both individual and corporate, cares about its health, but then exists for the world around it, exists for its non-members. Perhaps this is why Dallas Willard said this, the church is for discipleship. And discipleship is for mission or evangelism. He saw the church as this place that could nourish itself, that could grow healthy, that that people could come and grow together. They could find community. They could find that thing that Nicky Gumbel described in the quote at the start. They could find a family where they could belong, a home where they could be known and grow, and a hospital where they could be made healthy. That's the picture of the church. When, it, when it's like that, the, the church, I would suggest, is, is a gift to the world. But we've all seen church done badly. And so I feel like I need to, to change that quote just a little bit and say a healthy church is a gift to the world. That's the beautiful picture that we get of the church in Acts chapter two. Drop in on this quote with me for a second. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. I had moments where I was a very poor youth pastor. I said, we should do that still. Everyone should share everything and we should just split it by as many of us are in the room. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Over the years, theologians have wrestled with, is this church that's pictured in Acts, is it supposed to be something we're supposed to copy? Or was it just figuring out its own self? Was it just growing? Was it trying to figure out how to do life together? And there's a reason I would suggest we long for it to be something to copy. Isn't there something beautiful there? Don't you read it and say, that, that looks idyllic. These people figured out a way to live together in such a way that everything was shared, everything was in common. They enjoyed and were excited by each other. And so it raises a question of health for me and us. Are we a healthy community? If our call is to both grow, to be healthy, and to go, are we that community? Is there health here? And sometimes I find health, I find at least pockets of it. I see moments where I see us be the church that I know that we can be. I hear stories of the way that we care for each other. And then there's moments that I wonder and I ask. Found this quote that made me think about church and community. Resma McKennam, she's a counselor, a therapist. She says this, trauma is a wordless story. Our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. 
Trauma is a wordless story our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. It's this kind of instinct within us that tells us, no, something, something, I'm uncomfortable here. And I wonder about that for us at a community at times. When I think about all we've been through, and perhaps every church has been through over the last however many years, we've had moments where we've lost something. Perhaps you've had the moment of saying you went to look for someone and and they no longer do church here anymore. There's the moments where we walked through COVID together and we experienced those changes, all the things that happened in that season which really upended so much of life. We've been through leadership transitions. We've been through all of these different moments as a community. And so then the question becomes, are we healthy? Or are there elements of us that we look at times like this plant and not the plant that we're supposed to be? And then of course the question comes, like, well, what do we do about that? Because I'm eternally optimistic about the church and its ability to become what God has made it to become. And, and you might be new to this community and say, wow, you're kind of freaking me out. I thought this was the perfect church and it, and it, and it is. Just let me get there. <laughs> but you may have been around for a while and say, I've been through so much for this community. And I'm here for good, like I'm here to belong, but I'm also, I'm also struggling. How do we become the community that God has made us to be? How do we live for our non-members if there's unhealth in us? And it's something that I would say I've wrestled with ever since I came to South, which is now just coming up to three years, incredibly. Are we the healthy community God has made us to be. And you may have feelings, reactions to that. I'm just going to let it sit for a second. Maybe it taps into some of your longing for community, some of your wants for community. And I would suggest there's so much that is beautiful about self, and so much I still long for self to be. And so as we as leadership teams and staff and elders have prayed about this, it's just rumbled for me under the surface. And so this week we made a decision that has a lot of counterintuitiveness to it. Because we've experienced for the last three weeks what it is to do community in one room. And it's to me been beautiful. We've seen what it is to have so many of us that call South home together in one space. Yes, we have the food bank that we talk about as part of our community. We have small groups all over the place. We have all of these different things going on. But but for us that gather on Sunday, we found what it is for us to be together in one place. And so as we talked about this opportunity that we have right now, we decided we're going to keep doing this for the next season. For the next season of this church life, we're going to gather as one community at 10 o'clock every week. Now, for for some of you, you might have questions, and you should, because there's a counterintuitiveness to this, and South has always been counterintuitiveness. Your first question might be simply, what happens to the kids? Well, actually, we will return to having kids' ministry at 10 o'clock every week. They're clapping because they love you, kids. (laughs) 
because we realize kids best grow best together in that environment. Will there be some challenges to that? Yeah, there'll be a few challenges, but what I think we're gonna experience is this, that when we have all of those kids from two services together in one spot, there's gonna be an energy to our kids' ministry that's going to be delightful and exciting and profound. And so I'm so excited to see that for you volunteers who've wrestled with some of the tension over the last period of time where, where we might have five kids in a class one week and 20 kids in that same class the next week and, and we've lost some of those rhythms. The, the, there's going to be some figuring out there. John Samuelson, you guys that meet with him at nine o'clock, he very kindly offered to move his class to 8.45. Well, I say offered. I asked him if he would and he very kindly <laughs> said yes. And so you guys will gather a 15 minutes early so you can make it down here at 10 o'clock. We're in this season where we've actually grown as a community. And so the counterintuitiveness to me with this was if we'd never been two services, if this had always been one service, we would be now at the point where I would say to the lead teams and the elders, we need to think about a second service. So it's a counterintuitive thing to go back to doing one service at this time where it can feel at times pretty full in here. But I think in this season, we have the space to be a community together and to grow together as well. There, there can be, even though it feels full, maybe about 100 extra seats, which means we can be a community that grows together, that knows each other, and a community for the world around us. Will it require some of you to get up an hour earlier? Yes. Does it mean some of you can sleep in an hour later? Yes. Those are both okay. But somewhere what I would suggest in this season is that we're going to see the magic of a community formed together in the way of Jesus. That what you'll see consistently is you'll come to church on Sunday morning and begin to know each and every face that you see in the room. You're gonna to start to notice when people are missing in that space. You're gonna to start to have an opportunity to, to feel that familiarity of one community in one space. And I don't think it's any accident that in this season, we're actually gonna spend the next nine months working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount Together, as one group of people, we get to spend all of this time learning to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. I'm not saying South has been broken. I'm not saying it's actually an unhealthy place, but I believe this, this is going to make us healthier. And I believe it's gonna make me healthier and you as individuals healthier. Further on in his book on trees, uh, Peter Wallband says this, a tree, can only be as strong as the forest that surrounds it. It's only as strong as the forest that surrounds it. We are only as strong as the community, perhaps, that we find ourselves in. This is Pando, the biggest tree in the world. It's actually lots and lots of trees, but they're all genetically identical. And so scientists have looked at this and said, no, this is one organism, one tree with many different expressions. If anything, it's this perfect picture of what the church is supposed to be. Lots of seeds that have been planted. Lots of seeds that are growing. Lots of trees becoming healthy. And this beautiful picture that when many trees grow together, we become a forest. A forest that can be gifted to the world around us. A healthy church is a gift to the world because it produces healthy disciples. Let's pray.
Jesus, South amazes me as a community. You have done something special in this place, and I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of it. You've shaped it over decades through multiple different people, and it's always had this counterintuitive element to it. It's always done the unusual things. And I'm so excited for this next small shift, this slightly different iteration that sees us meet together as one people, that sees us grow, shaped in the way of Jesus, that sees us healthy and gifted to your world because we exist, at least in part, for those that are not here. So God, with all the questions that this has probably stirred up in people, all the ways that we might wonder, well, what will this look like? What will this look like? I just thank you for your wisdom and the fact that we can trust you. Sometimes in our moments, it will feel like we're building the plane while we're flying it. But you knew what the plane would look like all along. And so we celebrate our participation with you in this good kingdom of yours. Thank you that you're present here with us. Present in each of our lives, in the moments where we feel perhaps like the tree in front of me. We feel like, is this how you made me? Is this how I'm supposed to be shaped? I don't feel like I'm growing. It feels like there's so much in me that is dead. God, for each of us, in whatever ways we need it, would you breathe new life into us this morning? For those of us that are just holding on, would you remind us we're going to be okay? That we're loved. That we're cared for. That we have a home to belong in. A community to grow in. And a hospital that longs for us to be healthy. That is your church. And you are present with it. Amen. I want you to read just before Aaron and the team lead us this beautiful description of what happens when a community lives together. The local Christian communities were families and families of an extraordinary kind. In a society where women were disrespected, women were honored and protected. In a society where crude abortions were a regular fact of life and unwanted infants were often abandoned, the Christian community celebrated children. In ancient cities where most occupants were uprooted from their families and communities, the Christian community welcomed strangers. We get to be that kind of community and we get to do it together. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.